Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 20th, 2023. Leading people in the world on Keynote. We've had hundreds, thousands of people actually on the show. Many of the world's leading scientists, writers, thinkers, comedians, humorists, serious people. What we haven't had um, is something called a, a wipeologist, um, a very interesting kind of character who uh, uh, is an, a, a black expert on white people. Um, apparently, uh, uh, the, the term has been coined by Michael Harriet, and he is an example of what uh, one of these people is, a, a white apologist, a professional who has a specialized knowledge in the field of Caucasian culture, including the political, economic, and social habits of white people and their history. Uh, I'm thrilled that Michael is the first uh, white apologist we've had on the show, and he's the, also the author of an upcoming book this week, Black AF History, the unwhitewashed story of America. Michael is joining us from Baltimore Airport. Welcome, Michael. Congratulations on the new book. How do I pronounce that? Have, have I done it right? White apologist? Uh, you pronounced it correctly, white apologist. And uh, thanks for having me. Tell me, uh, how would you define that, Michael? What, what does it mean? Well, so the, the term originally. Uh, of course, the study of white people. And, and one of the things that I've always been adamant about is that, you know, we think that talking about black culture, black history, um, black people, you know, gives us an insight into race, especially this uniquely American relationship with the race. And I've always thought that, well, you know, black people didn't create the idea of race we didn't perpetuate it, especially as it exists in America. So to understand the phenomenon, you have to really understand the people who created uh, racism, white supremacy, and perpetuated in America, and that's white people. And so I think to understand it, you have to be intentional about understanding the history and the habits and the ways of white people. And that's what I think I, uh, that's the kind of how I coined the phrase. Well, I'm thrilled that you're on the show. The new book you claim is um, something called uh, uh, a, a. It removes the the white sugar coating on American history. Explain what you mean by that. What, what is the white sugar coating that normally is associated with the telling of American history? Well, if you you know if you look at this conversation that is kind of going on in America now about what they call critical race theory, what they're you know, and then the other thing called wokeness. What they're being uh, upset about is that, you know, they've always been able to write history and to tell the story of American history through the lens of whiteness. And then, and so uh, these other lenses have, you know, other perspectives have existed before, but because the media has you know, recently been democratized. I don't think that white people have necessarily heard what and how people think about and see and view America and American history. And American history has always been whitewashed. Uh, right after the Civil War, a group called the Daughters of the Confederacy created a national campaign um, to create what they call the lost cause to uh, 
I valorized the Confederacy as a benign group of people who were concerned about economics and taxes and not traitors to this country. And that kind of ethos has persisted throughout the American education system since the early 20th century. And so they've never really uh, seen and, and heard and learned history except through that lens. And what this book does is unwhitewash that, that history. It's a very personal book, Michael. I've been enjoying it all morning, the unwhitewashed story of America. It's also the unwhitewashed story of Michael Harriet. Tell me a little bit about your story and how you knit together your own personal narrative with the broader history of black history in America. Well, so I was born and raised in South Carolina, a little town called Hartsville, South Carolina. And my family story is, and my family history is kind of indicative and emblematic of the history of black people in America. About 40% of uh, black people who were enslaved in America came through South Carolina. Um, and then if you just include the people who, whose family spent time there, it's up to 90% of enslaved people. And being from South Carolina, I kind of absorbed that history. And my history, my family's history is the history of enslavement. It's the history of struggle. It's the history of dealing with the violence of white supremacy. But it's ultimately, it's a, a, a story of triumph. And, and I think, you know, through my family's story, because we all, and one of the things that I think is a theme of this book is that the idea of history, like we've always had this idea of an objective view of history or any kind, like journalism. Um, as a journalist, I, you know, we perpetuated that notion, but none of it is objective. It's all subjective. And the pretense, the pretense that we think of as objectivity is just whiteness, right? Like this, even when you just list a group of facts, right? The choices that you make not to include or what not to include or the stories not to tell, that is subjective. And so filtering my story and, and doing away with that pretense by saying, hey, I see the world this way because I was raised this way here, the people who raised me. I think that is a more honest version of history. Your mother comes out of this as a remarkable woman. She homeschooled you. What did your mother teach you that you wouldn't have learned if you had gone to a conventional school? I think it is not, uh, you know, there aren't specific like lessons or pieces of information I learned as much as I learned how to think, how, how to discover ideas and information and process them on my own pattern recognition and uh, independent thinking to be curious, to be inquisitive and to collect these ideas and to process them in my own way. I think that is the one thing she taught me. And the other thing she taught me is to, to examine everything, right? Uh, you know, closely don't accept anything that someone teaches you just because they say it. Right. And so, to examine everything and to interrogate it. She used to use this phrase all the time, right? Interrogate yourself to examine how you see the world. And I think those are the important things that she taught me in that education, in that education 
that I took with me into the larger world, right? And it largely shaped how I view history, how I view the world, and how I process the world and, you know, challenge the narratives that we are all told because of that, because I wasn't raised in a system that says, hey, this lady who's standing in front of the classroom said it, so it must be right. Michael, you come from a family of very strong women, not only your mom, you write about your two, I think maybe three sisters who have very much influenced you. We've done, I can't count how many shows we've done about black women and their role in American history. One of my favorite African-American thinkers and writers is Carol Anderson, who teaches at Emory University, a friend of mine, or was it a movie premiere, a movie about her in Los Angeles a few months ago. We also did a show a couple of years ago with Martha Jones, who wrote about Vanguard and black American, uh, American black women in terms of voting. Um, connect that with your own story. Did your mother teach you the importance, the value of democracy? What did she teach you about the, the values and the hypocrisy of American democracy? Well, a lot of what uh, a lot of what I think and what I learned about like democratic values, I don't think it. And, and as you can see in that in the book, it wasn't like my mother sat down and said, "Hey, here's what you should think about democracy. Here's what democracy is." But she taught me to be inquisitive and discover it for myself, right? But she took me to spaces, for instance, right. Um, Whenever, and I used to hate it when I was growing up, for every election, whenever it, whenever it was election time, my sisters and I would have to canvass the neighborhood for the candidates. And, you know, growing up, we hated it. And it was not funny. People's dogs would chase us. You'd have to go in homes where people were tired and didn't want to talk to you. But we knew we had to do it every year. But that taught me the value and the responsibility of democracy, right? Like it's not just a thing that happens. You have to actively maintain it and it's your responsibility. Like I know my grandmother and my mother didn't want to spend that time like canvassing and printing stuff and printing out and going through voter rolls, but it was their responsibility. And just like accepting that responsibility, not as a life lesson where, hey, let me sit down and tell you why we're doing this but just as a default way that you live your life. You have to eat, you have to clean your room, you have to break the yards, and you gotta go canvas and maintain your area and your neighborhood for democracy, right? Those are the things that you're responsible for in the world. And I think that carried through with me when I became an adult. Mark, you begin the book saying, I remember when I discovered America. You, you know, not just the date, but the time. It happened, you said, around 8 p.m. on November the 4th, 1980. What happened at around 8 p.m. on November the 4th in 1980? Well, that was the night that Ronald Reagan was uh, elected. And now Ronald Reagan has become almost like this mythic figure in America where he was a perfect Republican and everybody loved him. And I think people don't remember the real history. And that's like an example of the real history that's been white, white, white. Because like, there was a real fear 
even as a child, I remember a real fear of what would happen to black people when Ronald Reagan became president, right? Like he was the the manifestation of the Southern strategy, right? Like we, we don't remember that Ronald Reagan opened his campaign at a county fair in Neshoba, uh, Mississippi, where civil rights workers were murdered and buried in 1964. And there was a very intentional thing about that, right? And how he kind of congealed the far right under him, right? Because remember the KKK was pushing for Ronald Reagan to be elected. And then these like fiscal conservatives, he had uh, gathered them under his, his big tent. And there was that real fear of Ronald Reagan. And it's kind of an, ex- it's kind of funny how he's become like this symbol of American exceptionalism and this idea of the, the real, the right kind of politician who could get everyone under a big tent. When again, when you go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's an example of how not just history was whitewashed, but because they didn't hear those voices, right? They didn't hear Black people. They didn't have to regard Black people's concerns in the larger society. So they get to whitewash history that way. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up Reagan or you begin the book with Reagan. I'm rereading um, Reaganland uh, uh, by... uh, uh, Rick Perlstein, excellent book. Of course, he wrote Nixon Land as well. And I think he's very much uh, on the same page as you. And I wonder whether history is repeating itself in the sense that America, I don't think Trump is Reagan, but I think there may be a, a Reagan in the wings, a, a Reagan type of politician. What do you think about that? Yeah, so what we'll get, remember, right, so what we, what Nixon was was kind of, uh, you know, he was divisive, and he was right. Nixon is not, Nixon is Trump, but we still don't know right. who Reagan is. Right. So, so Reagan, the the alternative to Reagan to keep the 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 alternative to Reagan to keep the Republican Party alive, right? So, there's going to be someone who's kind of charismatic. Kind of, it can't be Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis doesn't have enough charisma. Uh, but there, there's going to be someone who's waiting in the wings, who has all of the ideology of the Trump of today and the right wing fanaticism of it. But he's going to be able to present it in a good package. I don't know who it's going to be, but there is going to be a Reagan right to pull because this the Republican Party can't continue on this trajectory with with. It's basically this niche right wing party filled with, you know, uh, I mean, no way other. Yeah, other than maybe it, or like maybe no not. information. Um, Michael, um, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a new book by the two Harvard uh, political scientists, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. They have a piece in the Atlantic: How American Democracy Fell So Far Behind. They have a new book out. It's called The Tyranny of the Minority. And it's about the way in which the Republican Party has become the white party and the rest of America is the majority. Might this be the last gasp of this minority as, as the Republican Party becomes more and more of a racially white party, the, the America that you write about in, in your black AF history? Are they now increasingly well, footnote? So 
it could be the last gasp of the Republican Party. But remember now, there's been some other last gasp in history before. Like, we forget that, like, because of whiteness, because whiteness is not real, you could just make people white, right? Like, it is possible they, they will just embrace Hispanics and make them white like they did Italians, like they did Jewish people, like they did the Irish in the 1920s, right? Um, remember the white fanatics. Yeah, right. Like, uh, that's what I was going to say. It was a Protestant thing, and then they welcomed Catholics in, and now we have a Catholic president, right? So, like, the thing that they other is always mutable, and it, it's always, because it's, it's not real, right? And so they can always, because they have power, they can always find a way to manipulate the their constituency to include themselves. And so we like we, while we like to think of it um, as a last gasp, the truth is that, right, like they could create some more white people out of magic, right? They could make, you know, because you, if you notice, there used to be Hispanic people and now there's white Hispanics and non-white Hispanics, right? And, and so this idea that they've created a race that is, has been so divisive it doesn't mean anything, so they can do whatever they want to do. Well, speaking of whites, we are talking to one of the world's leading, perhaps the first whitepologist, uh, uh, whitepologist, um, uh, Michael Harriet, Harriet, who is also the author of an important new book. It's out this week, uh, Black AF History. We're going to take a short break now, Michael. Um, and after the break, I want to talk more specifically about the book. And, and, and also, I want to talk to you about Black Twitter. So we'll be back in a second. I just want to remind everyone uh, that our sponsor for this show is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We're going to run a short ad, and then we'll be back with Michael Harriet, the author of Black AF History. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with uh, Michael Harriet, the author of Black AF History. Uh, Michael, is the book, and, and, and it's both personal and educational. It's a history. It's a polemic. It's entertaining. It's funny. It's very serious. Is the book designed for white people or black people or both? I think this is designed for people. Um, I think if you're interested in history and on an alternative view or a different view of history, then anyone can read it. Um, I think that it is written in the, from the perspective. So there are two kinds of history books that are kind of uh, popular, right? American history, what we call American history, that it's kind of excludes black people. And that comes, kind of comes from that, what we talked about earlier, that of pretense of objectivity, which is really filtered history through the lens of whiteness. Then there are books about black history that are about black people throughout history that are written from the black perspective. But what this book is, is a view of America through the perspective of black people who have lived, who have that lived experience. 
So it's not just black history. It's American history through the eyes of black people. And I think that's important because we own, we really get to see and hear that idea um, and that perspective. And so, I, but I think anyone can read it, right? Because I think ultimately, what is history? It's just stories, a group of stories that are true, right? And I think that if you make it interesting and funny and relatable, then, you know, humor is, is universal and truth is universal. So, like, if even if it is about black people, why I don't understand why white people wouldn't find it entertaining and interesting, especially if it's something that they generally don't know. You grew up, um, uh, you were homeschooled by your mom, and uh, you were schooled in, in, the, in the tradition of African-American writing, great thinkers like Du Bois. Uh, and, of course, the book is littered with other references of very well-known African-American thinkers, political figures. But it also introduces us to people, personally, I hadn't heard of, uh, like um, uh, Esteban de Durantes and also uh, a woman called uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Some people will know her. Why did you choose to, to write about characters that most people won't have heard about? Is this an attempt to retrieve, reappropriate, if you like, black history? Yeah, I think it is an attempt to introduce some of the origin stories that um, we don't know and not necessarily like niche people who like, have you ever heard about this person that did this thing, right? So when we talk about the first black people in America, you have to start with Esteban, who was here before 1619, like almost nearly a century before 1619, who saw most of this country probably than anyone who would ever step foot on this continent before then, right? When you talk about Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she was, you know, generally thought of as the person who created rock and roll. And so that we don't know who she is, is indicative of how these people and how these stories have been either erased by people who don't care about telling the story or intentionally erased by people who just want to take credit for the accomplishment that these people did. So in any case, right, I think to understand, first of all, like if we're going to understand rock and roll, you have to understand this woman who was the progenitor of it, right? If you want to understand uh, Black people in America, it's not just the 20 and odd slaves that came here in 1619, but there were Black people here before then. And some of them were free and some of them were doing things that we couldn't have even imagined uh, right now. Your work has been described, uh, you're very active on Twitter, you have over half a million followers. Uh, Ebony described your work as erasing shame from black history, one tweet at a time, and I guess now one book at a time. Is that the key here, Michael, to, to give pride to black AF history? Is it an issue of pride and shame? I don't even know if it's an issue of pride and or shame, right? I think, I, I think what we talk about when we talk about history is again white history even sometimes when we talk about black history right we talk about the stuff that black people did that was like white people like you know i'm sure you've seen these articles um 
you know, this woman was the first black person to graduate from this school in this engineering department. And I'm always thinking like, well, you have to also explain why this black person was the first to do that thing. And it was because this school segregated, um, excluded black people because of the because black schools, even K through 12 in America are underfunded because otherwise what you're saying is this is the first person who was smart enough to do something that white people do every day. Right. And so that kind of re that kind of reconfiguring the perspective and reporting the perspective and understanding that, right. Like the reason why these things exist is because of a historical effort and not just something that happened yesterday is important. You've been described, Michael, as the dean of black Twitter. Do you remember the first time you used Twitter? Oh, I don't. Um, it was in the, like in the early days, maybe two, I think I, my first, it was since 2009. Yeah, um, you joined, joined in December 2009. Do you remember what your first or your first series of tweets might have been about in 2009? I have no idea. It was so new then, and uh, and I might have. It was probably something silly or irrelevant, um, because like social media was pretty new then, right? Um, and black Twitter, there really wasn't a black Twitter then because it was so few people on it until the early two thousand tweens, um, I guess. But uh, I think one of the reasons I liked. Twitter was the idea that you could reach past your boundaries of, of ge geography and space. Do you remember the, when you first heard about social media itself? Did you think of that in political terms? No, I, I didn't think of it in political terms. Um, remember, you know, when uh, Facebook first came around and uh, there was a, a, a site college club so some of these were just first of all kind of emerged in college spaces so when i first heard of social media there were people in like uh college the computer labs using it for like dungeons and dragons and it was a social media right you shared music and you know sometimes books and stuff like that but uh, i think what we what we did with Twitter and social media, right, has always been political, right? Whether it is music or TV or just a party for a fire, all acts are political. And so I think what we did with it reflects that. We've done a number of shows actually on, on Black Twitter, uh, I'm sure with people you know, uh, one with uh, Disha Filia, uh, who... Um, is the author of Secret Lives of Church Ladies. She, we, we had a conversation about the not-so-secret life on Black Twitter, also with uh, Rion Amilcar Scott, uh, another writer. He, we talked about mimetic apocalypses. W what was or what is Black Twitter to you, Michael? I think it is a space in social media where... So there's a, this idea in uh that called the way it is there's a social structure in other words 
the way society works, the way society works, relates to each other. And then there's a governance structure where the way different groups inside those cultures relate to each other. And I think what Black Twitter is, is kind of like the Black governing structure online. In other words, we get to relate with each other and talk to each other in the ways and, and, and understand that like a lot of the things that we felt were specific to our regional region or our house are you know universal right like you know we all kind of hear the same jokes um, we all kind of get the same arguments from our mom and i think it is a way to connect and relate to each other in this within the confines of social media it's interesting yesterday i did a show with a new zealand writer lang liao a, a poet, a, a popular writer. And we talked about social media. She said she liked it early on when you could be anonymous. Can one be anonymous on social media and still participate in something like Black Twitter, Michael? I think you can. I think you, I think you can. I think um, it has become so... It's become so ubiquitous that I don't know if... The, because... In the early days, it was kind of like a toy um, then, and now it is a real method of communication that people use probably even more than like calling people on the telephone or, uh, you know, even like remember when email was kind of novel and then it became a work tool and a tool for, you know, talking to your mom and sending information. I think what social, that's what social media has become so therefore it can't be anonymous because so many people use it for important things right we use it to protest we use it to relate information and i don't know if it can be anonymous anymore you had an interesting uh twitter exchange which i i saw someone said someone wrote you saying you talk about anything other than race and you wrote sometimes maybe you're just accustomed to hearing the perspective of the white race when you read about the GOP base or CRT or inner cities or wokeness or American tradition or immigrants or law and order. They're talking about race too. I'll stop when they stop. When, in, when can this stop, Michael? When can we escape race? Is that a possibility or is that just a delusion? Is that I don't think another escape white, race. whitewashed version of the American story? Right. I don't think you gotta escape race. Like right like so we hear that that sentence all the time. Well I I don't even see race or I'm colorblind. We don't have to escape race, right? The people who say that don't they are so filled with prejudice or so accustomed to prejudice that they don't understand that you can see somebody's color, their history, their culture, and not be prejudiced by it. Right? I am I like being black. I'm proud of being seen as black, right? I like my ancestors and all of that, right? The negativity that you feel that accompanies that is something that you need to work on, right? But you can definitely, like race and culture and history, right? We can embrace that without embracing the negativity of it, right? Like we can recognize people are different and people like different kinds of music and different kinds of food and different kinds of, uh, you know, uh, grew up differently and not have negative connotations of that. So we don't have to ever like get past race. I don't even understand what that means, getting past race. Um, it's something like that white people have achieved because they largely have defined race, 
but we don't have to get past it. We have to get past the stuff that white people associated with race, the negativity, the the the, the uh, ideas of white supremacy, and the stuff that they associated with race. Final question, Michael. Um, this has been a pretty serious conversation. Of course, this is a, obviously a serious subject, but your writing is very funny, and you're a, a very strong uh, humorist. I think in many ways that that's one of the central features of your intellectual uh, arsenal. What's the role of humor in all this? Can we can we all laugh together about all this stuff? Yeah, I think we can laugh together. I think you. Um... I think humor is universal. Humor is, is something that brings us together. And I also think, though, that you don't have to try to include humor. A lot of times, I just don't take the humor out, right? Like, humor is something that exists in something, and we try to be serious about it. And so we take the humor out, and sometimes the best humor is just recognizing how absurd something is and not trying to dilly-dally around it. 